Welcome to the Jolly Podcast. I'm your host, Melissa Barrett. This podcast is for those who are interested in the conversation around diversity, inclusion, and equity. Each week, I'll be interviewing a guest who has something special to share or is actively part of building solutions in this space. Let's get started. Hassan Sabag founded the creative think tank Nature of Sound in 2013 to solve critical issues in the community like human trafficking. Mr. Sabak is a local leader who has created a grassroots movement and volunteer opportunities for youth. Under his leadership, he's coordinated communication between agencies across Solano County and the Solano Anti-Trafficking Coalition with the goal of comprehensive victim services and empowering survivors. All right, I have the exciting task of introducing Hassan Hassan Sabag. <laughs> I'm going to get it right. Hassan Sabag. Um, Thank you so much. And I am just really excited to have you here with me because I know you are the founder and executive director of Creative uh, Nature of Sound. Um, and you talk a lot about uh, creative community solutions. And I know we're going to dive into that. I'm excited to hear about all the things you're doing. But I always kind of start with you telling me a little bit about yourself and how you got to be where you are. Um, Because I know there's so many things going on with, you know, your focus. Well, thank you so much, Melissa. Um, This is such a fantastic opportunity just to talk about, you know, my my history and the journey that um, I've had to persevere to to really push Solano in the direction of, of taking care of our most vulnerable. I'm a second generation American. Um, so my father came here in the 50s and he um, joined the military. So he, um, you know, military background, but um, due to his service, he was left 100% disabled. Um, it was a slow, um, you know, process. He wasn't like 100%, you know, my whole life. Um, he had like some mobility and things like that. And, um, he managed and he is tough as nails. So I, I was able to grow up with a sense of responsibility, um, duty and care because I would always help him, um, when I was a little kid, um, when it came to just medical care and providing a good quality, um, life for him, it was really important to me. So that's really what helped me um, be able to uh, rebound from these things that I was able to, I was witnessing in a young age um, in high school and where I continue, you know, immediately started to problem solve and to, to look at ways of, of changing um, entertainment to being more of a solution rather than a like cause of these issues, you know, when you look at entertainment, you look at the Super Bowl um, and things like that, that actually spurs a lot of active, like uh, human trafficking because people will pay for escorts and things like that in these events because, you know, they're lonely and and whatnot. So it actually, you know, has these uh, unintended consequences. So that's just like, I was lucky enough to to grow up um, 
with with my family and I have a I have four older brothers and a little sister so oh, wow. that I'm always looking after my little sister and getting guidance from my older brother um so it's 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 always been a, a learning experience that's awesome well it sounds like a wonderful family um and you having having incorporated empathy into your world i knew there was a story i knew there was a story <laughs> there because i kept going i was like i wonder like what how do you how do you as a parent raise a son like you that is doing so many amazing things at such an, a young age i can't imagine what the rest of your family is doing but um <laughs> <laughs> you know i wasn't i wasn't perfect i was a very rebellious kid in high school. I mean, you know, I was mentioning going out to, to Oakland and San Francisco DJing. I didn't really, um, that was not uh, parental consent. I just did those things. Um, right. I just was lucky enough to make the right decisions when these crossroads came before me. Yeah. Um, and my parents were always very, um, you know, it's a military family, so they're pretty strict, but also forgiving. Um, at the same yeah. time, because they knew um, I was going to make the right choices. That's awesome. Awesome. Um, it's a it's an interesting story of how I got here. Um, it really starts when I was in high school. So back in like 2007, um, 2008, um, I was attending Vacaville High School and I was very passionate about music and that really allowed me to express myself and go out and and DJ and that was what I, I loved to do and in Solano County there really wasn't places for me to go um, there wasn't a, a way for me to express myself uh, musically so I had to turn to bigger cities I would go to Oakland San Francisco Modesto um all over and just share what i loved and and that was just my music and um and that gave me an insight into entertainment and nightlife um where i was able to identify that there was issues when it came to nightlife and entertainment and exploitation so that was one of the big um signs for me to to get into this work because I didn't feel that if the facilities and the, and the culture were structured in a way that it didn't take into account um, exploitation and, and abuse, it, it didn't sit right with me. So I was, I was lucky to have a good head on my soldier, uh, soldier, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I was lucky to have a good head on my shoulders and I was um, able to, you know, keep, keep away from a lot of the, the bad elements of nightlife when it came to, you know, drug use and, and things like that. Um, especially at a very young age, I was like 16, 17, 18, as these things develop, um, as I, as I noticed these things and I would work at uh, production events, um, doing, you know, events. Once I got out of high school, I already had a pretty good idea of what I wanted to do. Entertainment, um, was really what I was focused on and bringing people together because music is such a strong tether we all love the music it's just a, it's just a different flavor you know what what, what we really like and that allowed me to go well hey i'm noticing the first thing i noticed was um, access to water a lot of the times when there's a lot of drug use 
there's a need of hydration and when people were overdosing is really you know they weren't hydrating properly and you know we can't control everybody you can't control people's drug uses but at least you can make an environment that's safe and um where i worked we would do production events for um promoters and things and and different venues and so the first kind of opening of my eyes was actually the the lack of water and so they would shut off water fountains to make people pay for water bottles this would be like five dollars for just a water bottle which doesn't make any sense it's 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 ridiculous so people would buy that one water bottle or not at all and go into the bathrooms and just drink out of the faucets or fill it up out of the faucets which is not hygienic at all and it just shows you know that that level of exploitation, not not an extreme level of exploitation that you know my work is mainly focused on, um, but it just kind of opened, nudged you know nudged the door open for me, and then I started to look for more things that just weren't right, and you know, people being um, being drugged and 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 turned out missing and things like that. It wasn't like super prevalent where like it was happening everywhere. But it happened. And that was enough for me to go, why aren't we making protections like these procedures and protocols in entertainment to protect, um, you know, young, young women, young, uh, young boys and and just anyone in general from predatory uh, people. And so that really kind of. How do I uh, projected me or um, really pushed me in the direction of, well, I need to I need to step away from these for-profit entertainment businesses. And I went ahead and I worked pizza delivery at the time. So I just saved tips and saved my money from DJing. And I ended up um, paying for legal fee or legal services to, to found a uh, nature of sound. Um, oh. So it took a couple of attempts, different ideas. We had something else in mind, but it was very an open-ended conversation. I ended up sitting, um, settling with nature of sound because it was as um, it was as if it's our nature and expression to nurture an idea like a seed and to give voice to the voiceless to making projects that have long-term um, sustainability and uh, public good. And we really wanted to focus on creatives providing that bridge for the community. And so it really started with just music, but as we developed, you know, photography and film is at every event. So we opened it up to film. And what is, uh, what is such a, a eye-capturing thing? It's the art, it's the, the, the you know, murals and things that you're able to do to rally the community together. So we opened it up to art. And then, you know, we, we really were, it was really important to me to hit on something heavy because of the the need because there was a lack of discussion back in like 2010 2011 um, was human trafficking so i really it was passionate it was, it was a passion project for me to to focus on ht and starting the conversation so we brought musicians together they would bring their peers we would bring advocates. Back then we would work with um, Children's Nurturing Project. That was a nonprofit organization that helped with children um, through trauma and also um, foster uh, and and adoptions. So they were a really fantastic organization. And I was lucky to have um, 
the the executive director um, and uh, vice president um, Debbie Debbie Davis and Lori Hartman um, to support our our cause and believe in us because we were just a bunch of kids at this point just out of well, high school. you kids with an idea for sure. I mean, it. How do you go from I'm playing music and then I want to focus on exploitation? water sustainability and now you're talking about human trafficking i'm like whoa i mean you <laughs> your brain definitely works in in different ways and i love the fact that you know nature of sound has you reaching out in so many different ways to impact the community um you know as you said almost as a seed that is growing in so many different ways so, so when you got into this area, um, when you got into this area of human trafficking, um, you know, cause I know I live, uh, in the central Valley, which is off of highway 99 and five. So it's actually, I guess, uh, an area that is very easy for human traffickers, um, because they have easy access to the highway to get down south or wherever how did how so what kind of things did you guys do when it came to human trafficking in terms of you know trying to address the issue in in solano county so that that actually came in phases so our first um course of action was to educate and to make it an apparent reality that this is an issue that affects all of us a lot of the times um there's this misconception that it is a third world problem. But in reality, um, it is a problem across the spectrum in a first world country, in a rich country like ours, Americans are trafficked at a higher dollar than you would a child in Tibet, a child in you know impoverished countries where their families are forced to, to sell their kids into slavery uh, because of financial you know, situations and, and, and things like that. Um, and it's these are horrible um, situations and not to make light of them, um, but with an American, um, they are, you know, able to be sold and resold at a higher rate than any other um, third world country. Like a, like a monetary rate you're talking. Exactly. Uh -huh. Yeah, monetary rate. And I don't like to talk um, money too much on this, but it's really important that people have it in their in their mind that it is a multi-billion dollar industry. It is bigger than drugs and guns. This is the largest black market in the world. And there's a reason for that. And that's because it doesn't, you know, you don't just sell it to the person and it's done. This is, this is slavery. This mm -hmm. is the remnants of slavery. So it is the reselling of an individual and through labor or sex acts. And that's, you know, commercial exploitation, and um, and it's really important to to humanize the situation because uh, the language has changed dramatically over the years, and we're really blessed and lucky to be in California, one of the leading um, states in the issue. Um, but you look at just terminology in the courts and the legal and law enforcement; it would used to be called like an underage prostitute, as what they would call a child. Um, being exploited. 
And now the language has changed to sexually exploited child. It just creates sympathy. And language is such an important aspect of the conversation because if you um, have this term, prostitute, that already is a negative connotation, you go, okay, well, they did that to themselves. Right. And that is just so far from the truth. Even an adult who may be 24, 25, or whatever the age is, they were brought into this at the age of 13 or younger. And so any, I, you know, any respect to the, to the issue is showing that this is a complicated matter and it is a, it's a, it's a slow process. It's not just like, you know, one day, you know, you're abducted and this and that it's not like that here in the States. So it was really important for us to establish this baseline of, is it happening here? Yes. And mm-hmm. that's where we focused our music campaign um, or our concert campaigns to, to bring that question um, to those who are affected by it the most, young, um, young creatives and peers. Um, so that's where we started. We called it Stop the Traffic, and we hosted concerts throughout Solana County um, to just hear about it raise money for it and you know what we can do next and so that was something we did and we were actually really um that we got a lot of recognition for that um, we ended up being nominated for champions of children for uh solana county uh we didn't win it but um it was just enough to be recognized and we had um congressional acknowledgement um from uh, congressman garamendi and uh, a lot of local state senators um, like Susan Wolk and uh, Bill Dodd, and as well as leg- local legislators like Jim Fraser in our community. So um, there's definitely a few more, <laughs> but um, just off the top of my head, uh, you know, that was wow. just where we got started. And this was uh, 2016. So we were about, you know, it took a few years of planning because something as important as this, there's always a sense of caution um, you know, you can't go out guns blazing and, and hoping to do good because survivors of human trafficking and their stories deserve more than just good intention. It requires transparency, um, comprehensive policy and procedure, and being very, um, you know, focused on real attainable um, achievements. So it started off just letting people know it happens in the community. And then we started to continue the conversation? How do we engage the public in this issue? So then it goes into planning murals, planning more events, um, and then sharing survivor stories, which is essential to the conversation because survivors must be lifted and, and, and their stories should be heard. And it was really important for me to have projects that are uh, survivor driven and created by survivors for survivors. So it was it was quite a process. We first tried to create many uh, partnerships with agencies, but as a young, you know, uh, a, a male um, and being a new nonprofit, especially, um, you know, there's a lot of um, adversity I had to overcome because, you know, some questions I would get asked is, well, what are you, are you a victim? Well, it shouldn't matter if I'm telling you my story or not. I'm lifting up other voices uh, that are survivors, and that should be what's most important. 
And there was, we've noticed really quickly that there was some kind of territorial um, behavior with nonprofits that they didn't want to collaborate um, openly, um, especially with a new kid on the block, um, because there's this sense of this is our cause. We we're fighting this cause, but it's such an, it's, it's an issue that, I mean, every issue should be treated like this, but in this particular issue it is not a one agency can solve all. This is a collaborative right. effort. And luckily um, we worked really closely with our district attorney um, in our county. Uh, she believed in our vision and um, opened her arms and, and, and allowed us to collaborate with her office. Um, just a shout out to Krishna Abrams. And she really, um, had a strong belief that victims should be believed and supported, especially victims of human trafficking, so they can become survivors. And so it kind of, you know, this this phase in progress where we were first just letting people know it was it was happening, and then we're trying to mobilize the community. And that comes into like the stage that we're at right now. Um, I was I was able to create a coalition that I called the Solano Anti-Trafficking Coalition with support of um, the district attorney and several law enforcement agencies, advocates, um, service providers, and um, survivors. Um, uh, Yeah, service providers and survivors. And that gave us a, a new level of understanding because in a small community like ours, access to data, how many um, cases are being found, what is, you know, how many cases are being charged successfully um, and so on and so forth. How do we know what is necessary and what is needed in our county? So getting the numbers from law enforcement, that was incredibly important. And our agency has been um, focused on sharing that data. It's been a whole aspect of um, our coalition is data sharing, um, creating um, projects like a shelter so that um, when law enforcement or um, loved ones find or you know share that they found someone in this situation, they have a place to go. Yeah, and that brings us to one of the big hurdles that we've discovered is that you have these shelters that um, they take everything under the sun: homelessness, domestic violence, human trafficking, all in these facilities. And it's just to me, I think it is a disrespect to the realities that that these uh, survivors have endured because a homeless shelter is no place for a a survivor of human trafficking and a domestic violence shelter is also no place for a a survivor of human trafficking. Well, and and I think that's what's so interesting to me because I know when when I was having a conversation with Serena, shout out to Serena at Fresh Eyes Development, we were talking about, she was talking about how the conversation you all had had regarding, you know, a domestic violence shelter versus, you know, a, a human trafficking, you know, shelter um, can be so different when you're talking about, you know, locks on the doors and, and different things. So I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about that, because I found that really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it really just, it's the mentality. If you've endured domestic violence, security and safety is paramount. So large bulletproof doors, chains and locks, these are like comforting, I would imagine. 
um, not for everyone, of course, like, you know, one size does not fit all. Um, but for victims of human trafficking, it's about freedom. And a lot of these shelters, they take their phones away, which, you know, it's kind of common sense. Yeah, take their phone away. But it's really you can't, you can't keep someone in your shelter if they don't want to be in your shelter. You can try to limit their access to the outside world, but they're going to find a way because if there's a will, there's a way. And that's not a, a healthy conversation to start with somebody. So with what we've been able to examine and look at when it comes to um, other agencies uh, that have been doing this for a long time, we, we looked out to Alameda County for some of their shelters and we discovered um, one one of our partners, uh, Ruby's Place, is one of the first domestic violence shelters in the United States back in 1978. So they've had decades of experience. And um, I was lucky enough to, to get to speak with their executive director, um, Sephora. And she, um, you know, in, it was really just wanting to collaborate with us, helping us wherever we could, um, whether it was beneficial to her, her organization or not. It was showing their model was a gold standard and they used to take away their phones. They used to do all these limiting things. And they've learned that through, you know, comprehensive research that if you create a space that's transparent and um, safe and gives them freedom, they're more likely to succeed in your program. And these come with so many complications, but um, just, just to kind of, build how this this kind of happens like how does a structured look or a shelter look differently so for some of these shelters there's a no tolerance drug use policy well it's in these situations these you know survivors didn't choose to be on drugs uh traffickers use things like heroin to to keep them on a fishing line so they're always coming back from withdrawals so there's these this compound issue. Do you have a no? Uh, you have a zero tolerance policy, and so you're just going to be kicking these people back out on the streets. So they're back into trafficking, and they're back into those situations that you're designed to keep them from. That's not the case. And I've worked with um, survivors that had these issues, and um, it was through forgiveness and trial um, to overcome these things. And everyone has different mechanisms that they need to overcome these things. So um, some people just need a place to detox. They're good to go. They need, you know, they, they need support to get housing, uh, um, career prep, and then they're good to go. Some people have more uh, trauma. So you need to balance it with, with rehab and uh, counseling. So you're focusing on the drug addiction and mental trauma. A lot of the time, that's not the case. They want to deal with the, the drug addictions before they deal with the mental health side of things. That doesn't cut it. So that was something that we were able to do. And then even when you get them the rehab, are they going to be prescribing the medication that's even acceptable to someone who's suffering from extreme trauma? And we found in our community that it was not the case. Um, they were prescribing methadone, which is a common uh, rehab uh prescription for heroin addiction. Well, that's not recommended when you speak to advocates and survivors themselves. It has very heavy withdrawals. It's just not the right fit for, for, for them. And so that's why they, they, they lean towards getting Suboxone, 
which is an easier withdrawal process, and it's it's more recommended by survivors that this is this is the type of drug that you would give someone who has extreme trauma. And we were um, able to collaborate with Toro University and Drug Safe Solano um, and Bright um, Bright Health Heart, um, Bright Heart Health to get access to prescriptions and being seen by a doctor within 24 hours of, of finding a victim of human trafficking, which is, you know, incredible to increase the speed of, of when this are activated is, is essential because you have a very limited time frame to right. get these um, services activated. And um, just going into more of the differences, like um, something that's simple is a bathroom. Um, in homeless shelters, they're very open space bathrooms. Um, that's not really the right environment for someone who has um, suffered extreme trauma and, and, and sexual and abuse. Um, it's just not, not the right fit. So we designed our shelter to have um, personal bathrooms and showers. So even um, this really plays into um, being a, a, a designed for everybody, especially uh, minority and LGBT, um, so that they, you know, it wouldn't be a, an open space bathroom if you were trans, wouldn't be a place that you would want to go into. Whether or not you're comfortable with your body, it's still just, it's not, in my opinion, appropriate. And then even, you know, um, they should have that as well. But these are just things that we picked and, and looked at um, to ensure that we're creating something that is um, going to provide the best possible um, service for, yeah. um, for the mo our most vulnerable. And it's just this structure, you know, just making sure that it is a designed by survivors for survivors. And this is um, through the coalition, we were, we were lucky to have um, uh, one, of, one of our survivors, uh, Nicole McCall, uh, she teaches law enforcement and um, the warning signs of exploitation from coast to coast. And so I'm very, um, very lucky and, and privileged to say that she's part of our organization as a director. And she's one of our, um, she's really the spark of our heart, you know, um, when it comes to just make sure this program is successful. Wow. I mean, that is phenomenal. I can't even tell you how many things I got out of that. Not to <laughs> mention, I think you started off with when you talk about building a coalition now um, and, you know, a lot of this, a lot of what you talked about really came down, it comes down to allyship. Um, you know, you are, you know, creating that safe space, that allyship um, around the causes that you care about. And I think, um, you know, there, everybody can learn from that for sure. Let's pause for a moment. We'll be right back. So then what other kinds of solutions? Because I know when you talk about music and stop the traffic, those are like just, you know, drops in the bucket with all of the things that you're doing in the community. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the other things you're doing? Um, yeah. So if, just even expanding what we're trying to create for survivors, um, 
creating support systems that are based on identity, ethnicity, and faith, giving people that personal relationship and um, the support systems that they seek. Um, you know, especially for minority communities, it's really important that they can feel supported by their community. So it's essentially one of the things that we're doing is building support groups, um, connecting with faith-based organizations, because a lot of the times they connect the faith to a shelter. And I feel like that's the personal journey between, you know, between them and their faith. Mm -hmm. So whether or not they're um, Christian, uh, Jewish, Muslim, uh, uh, Hindu, Sikh, it, it shouldn't matter. This shelter right. should be not, you know, the, the structure of the shelter should not be based on a particular faith, but have those opportunities if they seek it. Right. Um, and that just creates a whole level of respect because a lot of the time people you know, uh, I don't want to throw horror stories out in this, but, but it's really important when you see the misuse of faith. Right. Um, I've heard, you know, one one survivor story was that they went into a shelter and they were pregnant and they wanted to overcome this obstacle, this horrendous situation and environment that they were living in. And one of the shelter workers was like, what makes you think you're going to be a good mother? God wouldn't, uh, and, you know, I think she was saying like, Jesus wouldn't want um, you to have this lifestyle and, and still have like this, you know, worrying about your, your daughter, you should be worrying about yourself. And it's such a, it's such a horrific story in the sense of, I've spoken to survivors that their motherhood was the strongest tether out of this life. Yeah. Um, it was building on the fact that they want to create a, um, a life that isn't going to bring their child into this situation as well. And just to hear the exact opposite being, say, uh, being said and using their faith against them, I thought that was, you know, despicable. Yeah. Um, and it's not uncommon. Um, and that's why it's really important for us to separate it and to make sure that this is a space that, you know, it is what you make out of it. If it's going to be a religious journey of faith, that's your choice. If it's going to be something just secular and your own personal um, traumas and your overcoming in your own way, that's, that is how you get out of it. And, um, and even when it comes to law enforcement, um, it is really important. And we're lucky that we have the partners that we have that respect this is that if they don't want to press charges and if they don't want to talk to the police, it's not the shelters, you know, it's not our job to do that. It's our job to create something that they feel safe and trusted in building that type of relationship. Whereas, you know, instead of like, saying, hey, in order to stay here, you need to make sure you process your trafficker. We all want them to process their trafficker, but it may not be that simple. They, they may fear the ramifications and they're not going to be in the right headspace to confront this issue unless they're given that space, that time to heal and to grow. So it's such a multi-pronged issue. Um, but beyond just human trafficking, 
um, we were able, you know, we, we use our creative platform to um, get people involved in the community. And, and as much as HT is super important and it is something of passion for me, it doesn't, our organization doesn't stop there. We, we really encourage all our volunteers to, to speak up on things that are, are important to them in their community. And we, we created a virtual volunteer platform. So we have people from all over the world um, volunteering with us using their skills to not only make portfolios for themselves, but to make some real good. Um, and we try to try to keep a global mindset when it comes to these conversations um, and how do we address things. And some of the ways that we've done that is while we do have these projects and things that we can do, um, we have also just included things that are fun. You know, entertainment was really um, a strong pillar in our organization. So we even included video games as a way of, you know, creating conversation about these issues and also fundraising. And this allows us, you know, partner with big Fortune 500 companies and creating a campaign that goes across state lines, across country boundaries, and is more of an international conversation because exploitation can happen in so many different ways. Um, like just online on a video game, you have a lot of youth, a lot of um, bad actors as well on there. And um, it's really important that we create a conversation that talks about what are those signs? What's a healthy online relationship? What's something that's something to be concerned about? And even when it comes to going out to your local game shop and playing, you know, games that you love, how do we make sure that the staff is aware and able to, you know, do something about it in case their own, their own um, customer or, or um, community is hurt or harmed? So these are ways that we've been able to just spread the message and diversify the way that we've approached it. And this also, this also creates volunteer opportunities. So yeah. with that is reducing of delinquency. And with video games, for example, it's a very disenfranchised group. Um, they're not embedded into the community like basketball and, and football and, and soccer and baseball. It's, it's, it's disconnected. So us building those bridges and those ways for that community to make an impact and protect not only themselves, but other elements and other factors of their community is also really important because it makes it beyond, oh, they're just wasting time playing video games. This is a negative connotation to what they're doing. They're, they're doing what makes them happy. And the science shows that people who play video games um, find themselves to be happier than, than the socialite counterparts. So it's, it's very interesting to see the dynamics of that. Yeah, no doubt. And, I, I, you know, it's interesting to me because you have so many different layers of depth when it comes to, you know, the entertainment, but then you've got, you know, science and technology, the arts, the, I mean, it's kind of like, it, it is bringing almost life in as opposed to and allowing them to decide when they want to go out. You know what I mean? It's, it's almost like bringing the city to someone who has been through that amount of trauma and then they decide when they want to open the door and, and go out. So, um, I mean, kudos to all that you're doing over there. 
I think it's um, it's so amazing for you as such a young person um, to be making such an impact on your community, um, both, you know, I mean, really globally. I mean, it's it's not, you know, I'm not trying to say you're only doing it in your community, but it's like this, you have this global community that is is really responding to, um, you know, a world problem that, um, unfortunately doesn't seem to be going away, but um, hopefully we are, we are chipping away at it through educating others on all of the, um, the challenges associated, um, especially as, as people come out of it and those survivors that, that come through and really want to make sure that they're getting the services that they need to kind of re-enter the world in a, in a healthy way. Exactly. And, you know, it's a, it's a global conversation and it's, it's really hard to stand by when you see the issues um, having the, when you see people muddying the water, when it comes to something as important as fighting human trafficking. Um, I'm a very optimistic person. So like for me, um, numbers can be kind of um, deceiving because you look at the the statistics of how many people are suffering from slavery type conditions and the number is incredibly high but when we look at the percentage of the population it's gone down so while the population has boomed and that small percentage is more than ever before but it's the smallest percentage that it's ever been so when it comes to just creating a really accurate conversation it comes with dismissing misinformation. Um, a lot of the times, one of the key takeaways I, I always make is um, victims have their stories um, hijacked and used for political purposes. Mm. Uh, and that's something that we see through QAnon. They, they're very, they don't show hesitancy or caution when they um, share uh, false stories of exploitation um, or exploiters. So for me, who's been working in this background and recognized as a professional in the topic, because I've been doing this for almost 10 years, um, it has, it is just incredibly alarming because there's always, I've always shown restraint and caution because I would never want to, to put anything out there that was wrong or um, hasty. And I'm a little bit of a hothead sometimes. So it was a challenge for me no to way. do that. <laughs> <laughs> but um when when we you know be true to ourselves and and look at how important it is for us to just be our our, our best selves and do our due diligence um it really creates a different um you know environment for getting things done you know? Well, and I think what's what's really fabulous is when you start with education, I only recently was able to go through an organization that I work with. They did an event on human trafficking and I was sitting there. I had no idea um, the just the breadth of not only you know, how it's happening in my community, but the mental state, all of the challenges that these victims go through, the survivors that, you know, that are the mental anguish, the, you know, the self-esteem. I mean, there's so many different layers to it and it is so eye-opening. So 
I mean, I think um, I just appreciate you coming on and talking about um, the subject because I think there's so much work to do in this area. I literally, not long ago, my daughter went to the mall and somebody approached her. They wanted her phone number or something like that. And apparently she had told me that a woman had been taken uh, with a child. I guess they were targeting women that had small children. Um, And they ended up uh, taking them both in the car. And then down the street, they essentially threw the young boy out and kept the woman. It was one of those things where you go, wait a minute, that happened down the street in my city, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's, it's kind of mind boggling. Cause I don't think you don't personalize it in a way where, you know, that like, this is what's happening. Like this could happen to your daughter or to your, you know, to your son or, you know, to your neighbor. Um, and so when you talk about it's, it's everyone's problem, um, you know, and the allyship around it is is just amazing that you're creating in that community. I just really appreciate you coming on and talking about it. So um, do you want to talk a little bit about Nature of Sound and how people can get a hold of you and what you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. Just um, if I may, um, there's just this conversation when it comes to human trafficking is so, you know, so massive. Um, but some important um, takeaways, again, um, you know, when it comes to abduction, that's actually, at least in my community and the data that I've seen, um, it's actually the rarest form of, of human trafficking. Um, and that's what we call a guerrilla trafficker because, you know, guerrilla warfare is very like um, suburban, subvert, um, brutal and erupt. Um, that's like, in at least Solana County, it's just very rare. It's usually what we call the Romeo trafficker who um, penetrates the, the, the flaws of their victim. Mm-hmm. They ended up ident- they en- identify the weaknesses and whether they have issues with their family or um, self-esteem, they latch onto it and, and they expand those wounds, those mental wounds. And they try to um, comfort them. And this is like what I hear is the worst trafficker. You would think the, the gorilla trafficker is just deadly and violent. And that's the worst one. It's really not. It's the one who coerces you into right. believing that this is, you know, this person loves you. This right. person's showering you in gifts. And then eventually it comes up to, well, I've bought you all these things. Now you have to do me a favor. Right. And they, they begin to isolate them and, and remove them from their social, their, uh, their safety net, their family, their friends. And it's that, that's the trafficker that we're worried about. That's the one yeah. who finds your daughter online on Instagram or TikTok and is a slow, horrible process. And it's, you know, s- some of the warning signs is like your kid's just getting valuable gifts. Like they get a new iPhone. You know, that's a huge huge alarm especially if you're if you're not financially able to provide these things to your child and someone else is not saying it's always going to be human trafficking but it's certainly an alarming sign to just be very cautious and it's it's about education Mm -hmm. and i just wanted to throw all that out there um because i think it's 
out of all the information, that's probably the most important. No, you're you're absolutely you're absolutely right, because I think, um, you know, as I was thinking through it and going through the this this educational process myself, you know, this process that you're talking about could be months, could be years. I mean, it's it's not like it happens overnight. And I think as a parent, as I was listening, I kept going, you know, Because I think especially if your child is, you know, maybe I have a daughter in high school or whatever, and they're doing something, you always think about, oh, I'm going to take her phone away. But it actually plays right into the trafficker's mindset of, oh, I'll just buy you a new iPhone. And guess what? You don't have to communicate with them because he's only communicating with your daughter now. Or, you know what I mean? It's, and so for me as a parent, I, you know, it was kind of, there were so many different times in that education where I just kept going, oh my gosh, like I had, you know, as a parent, you automatically are thinking like, well, what's, what's the punishment for not doing what you're supposed to do or whatever, Mm-hmm. But it actually feeds into it because there, you know, it's like you're helping to create that isolation um, from the family. So um, I think, you know, if there's so many different perspectives as you go into it to try and make sure that you're doing the right thing to support the the victims of these crimes as opposed to just looking so sternly about, you know, like, hey, this is my daughter. Now you're on punishment or whatever. Exactly. It all starts in a healthy conversation. Yeah. Um, But definitely, uh, I'd love to even share um, how people get involved if any of your uh, viewers are interested. Um, Mm -hmm. So anyone can visit our website at uh, natureofsound.org. Um, and there's a sign up button if they want to, you know, share the skill sets that they do have. You don't necessarily need any particular skill sets with you just want to be supportive, um, you know, sharing links, sharing um, events and things like that goes a long way. Um, we also have a Patreon for those who want to donate to our projects. Um, we try to do a structured donation system where you can donate to a cause that we're fighting for. So um, when it comes to our human trafficking um, issues, we, we go with um, uh, Solano, it happens here. And it's our little hashtag for it. And everything that we raise goes into um, supporting the services that we do um, so provide as a, as a collective and a, as a coalition. Um, we're, we're lucky to partner with um, SaneSart as a, a group of medical examiners and nurses that go and uh, evaluate um, survivors of exploitation and children. Um, we work with Solano Advocates Against Violence that they uh, work with them and do case management and process the, the survivors through the program. And then, you know, with the various other service providers that we work with, um, I always say, we're not in the business of uh, replicating services. It's always about bringing the best together. And so, um, you know, even if it's not a cause that you're particularly passionate about, um, we just haven't heard your voice yet to, to really work towards that issue. Um, you know, we do focus on like fentanyl. Um, that's something that I've, um, I was actually, I get elected into a lot of these countywide committees. So I was elected as um, chairman for the Solano Partnership Against Violence. So that's just 
violence as a whole, not so much just, you know, human trafficking as domestic violence and things like that. I was also elected as chairman, uh, co-chairman for uh, the Solano Public Health Collaborative ATOD, which is alcohol, tobacco, and other drugs. So it's all just a very 360 degrees of just trying to do what we can to, to help the youth and to lift them up. And when it comes to education and, and sharing um, to the youth, we, we host um, creative workshops and partnership with the Solano Office of Education. We call it Artist Power, and we love to um, showcase local creators or talented individuals, um, their story and their journey of using creative expression to either make a successful career or to overcome traumas and, and obstacles in their life um, or making a mark in their community. And we love to share those with our students and our, um, our community so that we can, you know, learn and, and work together. Wow, that's phenomenal. I don't know when you sleep. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a lot going on. But... Five hours. That's about it. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Well, Hassan, I so appreciate you coming on and talking about the amazing things that you're doing. I hope it inspires people around the world um, to create coalitions of allies and to impact the communities that like you are. Um, so um, kudos to you and thank you so much for joining me this week on the Jolly Podcast. Oh, thank you so much, Melissa. It's such a pleasure just getting to speak my story and just to speak to your viewers. So I, I incredibly am thankful for it. My pleasure. Well, I can't wait to talk to you in 10 or 15 years and see what else has been going on. So I hopefully we will stay in touch and um, yeah. definitely we'll be following the nature of sound and hopefully we will be able to get some get some art and some music going as well. And um, so wishing you the best for sure. Yeah, and we'll have a actual uh, um, a documentary on my journey. Um, and the process of how I got here, I did give a little bit of a light overview. There's so many, um, so many aspects of my story. Um, so we're going to be fitting that in and I'll let you, I'll let you know so you can share to your viewers. Please do. Please do. Yes. I can't wait to hear all about it. So I feel like we've just barely scratched the surface. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. Too so. much to tell in an hour. <laughs> no doubt. Okay. Thanks for joining me on the Jolly Podcast. Please subscribe so you won't miss an episode. See you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.